0: G'day, this is The Age Stage, a program that looks at issues and matters affecting older Australians, made possible by Aftercare Australasia and our friends at Australian Unity. Welcome everyone, I'm Brendan Telfer. This week on The Age Stage, the extraordinary story of a former federal MP, Max spur his light-filled bucket
1: and his belief that the device is improving his Parkinson's disease. If using infrared light can protect neuron cells in a mouse's brain, why can't they protect the neuron cells in my brain? I'd regain the sense of smell, the fine motor movements. I was able to play the piano again. All of those symptoms had improved. Max Burr and his role in a proof-of-concept clinical
0: trial and the role that infrared light might be having in the treatment and control of Parkinson's. That's a little bit later on in this week's edition of the Aid stage. But first up, Ron Haynes from Aftercare Australasia, as he does every other week, has slipped into the Bendigo Bank Studio. Ron, we haven't seen you for a week or so. Um, as you do, when you do drop by, you bring us up to speed on the Royal Commission currently underway
2: revelations have been interesting and a little bit confronting. then mm. there's been a whole lot of quite concerning bits of information that have come out of this second round of hearings. Um, one of the things that really stood out was this uh, remarkably high level of assaults that are going on uh, in the nursing home sector. Um, and so specifically we're talking about what they call reportable assaults. So these are assaults that involve um, residents, with staff members only so not issues between the residents themselves and the figures for the last financial year are saying that it's three thousand seven hundred and seventy three reportable assaults Uh, now uh, this is just extraordinary that this is going on
0: and who's doing the reporting warren i mean are these are these um
2: nursing homes reporting themselves, and are these reliable figures? Mm, well, unfortunately, uh, I have to say yes, it's it's self-reports. you You may recall that I uh, outlined uh, some time back that we all received a, uh, a survey uh, which specifically asked about uh, reportable assaults. and I, I my impression is that this is the first time that they've even really had a, serious attempt to review the figures and try and update them, but it's still completely dependent on the approved providers themselves, disclosing how many of these sorts of uh, assaults have have occurred in their facilities. and obviously you know the thing people need to remember is, they're businesses, you've got a you've got a vested self-interest in under-reporting because it's very bad for your brand, especially if you're a large, uh, you know, a large organisation that has, if you like, really high a really high brand profile, where you know the reporting's about one facility may, in people's minds. Be become equivalent to, you know, the hundred other facilities that you've got across the the nation, which aren't having any issues at all. So they're very um, reluctant, in my opinion, to, to accurately report this. Well,
0: indeed, as a collective, you know, the Nursing Homes Collective would surely be trying to present a, a lovely and squeaky clean business model, but this is sort of making a bit of a mockery of that then, mm. this number of assaults. Mm. Carers
2: on patients... Mm, Staggering
0: mm, figures, mm, really, mm. isn't it?
2: Yes, it is. It's it's shocking because clearly uh, there there needs to be a whole lot of safeguards being put in to make sure that these sorts of things don't happen And, and the figures suggest that those safeguards are not being uh, you know, done at a level that's ensuring the safety.
0: Well, that's up until this time, and I guess that's what the Royal Commission is mm-hmm. all about. They yeah. uh, flush it out and they make some recommendations. But again, as we've heard you say in the past, the Royal Commission is probably not going to be delivering any conclusions for some time yet.
2: Mm-hmm, that's right. Uh, there are things, though, that are happening. I mean, obviously, as is often the case with the uh, you know Royal Commission sort of shining the spotlight onto issues, uh, there has there was also a very interesting comment. Um, from the Department of Health Secretary who uh, noted that the uh, number of serious risk findings made by the aged care regulator uh, has jumped. From uh, two years ago, there were two serious findings. Um, The most recent year, there were 61. And uh, so I think it is having an effect. But, of course, then you have to wonder, well, uh, once the Royal Commission winds up, does everything just go back to back to normal, if you like, um, and go back to the way things were. But
0: you would think that there's going to be some sort of infrastructure left behind after the Royal Commission or recommendation would be some sort of infrastructure that would be able to regulate and observe and uh, sanction this sort of behaviour in the sector, surely?
2: Hmm. Look, Brendan, I agree. That's what, that's what should happen, and I think we'll just have to watch and see what unfolds. But again, we're at the risk of sounding like a terrible cynic, um, I think uh, quite some time ago I mentioned that there's already been 12 inquiries into these issues within aged care, not Royal Commissions admittedly, but 12 inquiries over about the last 10 years which have resulted in very, very, very little change. So um, that, that's a lot of the reason that we're in this, you know, seemingly in a crisis uh, within the industry.
0: Just for the sake of editorial balance here, I mean, mm-hmm. your business model of course advocates that basically it's in-home care that uh, you address Um, so perhaps those that uh, do provide uh, the nursing home Uh, or aged care facility would be suggesting that you might have a vested interest and you would be finding against them?
2: Mm. Look, I think that that's probably a reasonable assumption for them to have. Um, But but it's also about uh, the fact that I'm in that side of the industry is because I've seen how the other parts of the industry operate and uh, I'm just not comfortable in that space because if if you're really serious about providing people with uh, proper support, These sort of corporate models that I've saying are sort of progressively creeping into nursing home care in my view, are a lot of what drives um, these the sorts of issues that they're seeing now.
0: But those sorts of corporate models are surely being introduced to try and keep a, a tap on on costs, um, the, the cost of providing that sort of care. The business model is being really examined very healthily here, I would suggest. Yeah. It's being squeezed, mm. and they've got to try and come up with some means of making, I guess, some sort of profit out of this business model, which is looking after older Australians. Uh, yeah. But on the way, it's the their duty of care within that how do you enshrine that duty of care
2: yeah and look I, I think this this sort of does point to the need for um, um, a greater level of there being well-established standards of care that are quite measurable and that that uh, both families and regulators can come in and and clearly see whether or not um, service providers are actually meeting those where whereas up until now, it's largely been self-regulated, and I think I've, again, I've commented previously on the difference that I see between how, how very specific some of the standards are within disability care. Versus aged care, where they're, they're almost sort of like motherhood statements in terms of, or aspirational statements perhaps would be a better way to put it around, you know, what sort of supports they're looking for.
0: So, what is this saying about the workforce and the people that are being employed in this sector? Is it resonating with you?
2: Well, look, again, what's tending to happen is it's a bit of a race to the bottom uh, where uh, their providers are often looking at trying to reduce the number of more expensive. Statements. Staff, such as nurses, and I know the Nursing Federation uh, has had a lot to say on, on that, how there's been a, almost a mass exodus of uh, nursing staff from within uh, the aged care sector and in particular within nursing homes, um, and, and a growing uh, reliance on putting respons- more and more responsibilities on the lowest paid staff, the um, PCAs as they're called. Uh, to perform more and more um, nursing-type duties and more and more responsibilities uh, and often without adequate support systems in place. Um, So, you know, I I think these are some of the changes in the industry that are creating a lot of the difficulties that we're now seeing. So
0: where to from here? What are we up to as far as the Royal Commission is concerned? I see that you've got a very heavily a big tome <laughs> over there navigating. What is it called? Navigating
2: change, is it? And navigating the maze. The maze. Is the, navigating is the heading. The maze. Um, so this is a background paper that they produced in February. And uh, look, I, I haven't got time to go into it. It's uh, fifty-one pages. <laughs> um, but I think the, the the key thing to come away from uh, come away with takeaway with from that is is the fact that it is actually an incredibly complicated system possibly far more complicated than it needs to be and that's one of the other things that makes it difficult to oversight and and regulate Uh, and it makes it difficult for families to work out what's the best option for them to take. Um, We uh, often find that I'm having to advise people who uh, might be, say, for argument's sake, on a level three package, which is a sub- substantial amount of support for someone living at home. Um, but if they, what I'm telling families is yes, but if you need um, significant ongoing nursing care as opposed to personal care, uh, that has to be provided by a registered nurse, and the costs of that are prohibitive. Uh, and so you can look at your your funding and go oh well this is terrific i've got you know hundreds and hundreds of dollars a week to spend on services and then you find out that in-home nursing might be costing 80 75 80 dollars an hour or oh, sorry a half hour a half hour um, and you need visits half hour visits seven days a week uh, well all of a sudden you know most of that that buying power from that package has just evaporated into thin air. Medical costs ain't costing an absolute fortune these days. Mm. Well, and it's it's to do with whether it's subsidised or not. So if you're on a lower level of package or you're um, receiving services from council in the sort of more traditional way of getting that in-home support, those costs are heavily subsidised and you might be paying something in the order of $10 a visit. Um, but as soon as you go onto a higher level package, uh, there's a bit of sort of you know cost shifting, I guess, that goes on with within the department, uh, where all of a sudden those subsidies are removed and you're paying the actual full cost of those um, that, that nursing care. Uh, it's nothing that the nurses themselves or the companies that provide that can do much about. Um, it's just the way that the funding works. But it's a str- sometimes it can create these quite strange sort of inequities. Um, we've got a we've got a lady that we're working with at the moment who we were quite lucky that we were able to um, establish that um, the sort of assistance that she needed was right down the lower end of what you'd regard as being nursing care. And it was able to be managed through a combination of having some personal carers coming in and and taking over what the nurses were doing, and then a bit of monitoring of her health needs from her from a, a, a practice nurse at the local GP's clinic that she can now go to once a week and get that done. She well, that's a happy resolution for yeah.
0: her. It's a it's a it's a way forward. But I guess the conclusion at this stage of the Royal Commission is that they're finding out that there needs to be some. sort sort of better administration in terms of regulation of the workforce and workforce practices within this sector. Mm. And the other one, I think crucially, probably by the sounds of it, is it's going to come down to the almighty dollar and how much <laughs> the government is going to have to invest in
2: this sector because we're getting older. Mm. There's a, there's an enormous uh, unmet gap, and that's one of the other things that was touched on in the Commission, uh, you know, they, I think the, the headline is, you know, there's a billion-dollar crisis. And uh, what they're saying is that uh, with this sort of baby boomer generation coming through now, the demand for aged care is only going to increase and, in fact, increase exponentially. And uh, there's already um, a shortfall of people that are waiting, for example, for home care packages. Um, so they're to, just to bring down the current waiting list, to three months as opposed to where it's at now, which is 12 months, uh, they're saying that would cost billions of dollars to fund an additional 30,000 high level packages.
0: 30,000?
2: 30, 30,000. Um, that's the gap that's there at the moment.
0: Well, we're speaking to Warren Haynes of Aftercare Australasia. Warren, we're going to take a bit of a break. Have a listen to our wonderful sponsors. You, of course, are one of them, and (laughs) we must uh, establish that fact here at RPPFM on the aid stage. We'll take a break. We'll be right back with more in just a moment. Our PFM across the Mornington Peninsula, 98.7 and 98.3. Great to have you company this Thursday morning. Brendan Telfer in the hot seat. This is the Aid Stage, of program that we've devised that looks at matters affecting older Australians, made possible by our very good friends at Australian Unity and, of course, Aftercare Australasia. Speaking of Aftercare Australasia, Warren Haynes is here from that company. Before the break, we were talking to Warren about his observations And conclusions so far in this uh, fast-evolving Royal Commission, which is looking at the sector. A couple of other things I just wanted to bring up, uh, Warren, uh, Mm -hmm. as we come back from the break. Um, That was chemical restraint and dementia. Um, We're talking about dementia and Parkinson's disease, as we heard earlier on in the program, in a a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But obviously, again, hugely impactful uh, the chemical restraints as well. I mean, we're talking about workforce before and uh, physical abuse, mm. but this is borderline physical and and mental abuse as well, isn't it? Ch- chemical restraint.
2: Well, so again, just to be just to sort of recap what chemical restraint is, it's essentially taking medication for the primary purpose of. Controlling your behaviour, so often what that results in is the, you know, that sort of almost one flew over the cuckoo's nest um, the appearance of things, where people are sedated to a point where they're not really participating in life anymore. Um, and you know, in its worst case, you then get a whole lot of really serious side effects.
0: But who is making these determinations about
2: the, the the chemical intervention? I mean, where is the responsibility residing in all? that? Well, it's 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 ve- it seems to be very unclear, and that's that's one of the issues. So, um, I, I was just to sort of give some context here, and this is kind of me, you know, <laughs> using my nursing background. Yeah. Um, people often assume that there's um, really widespread knowledge and understanding of how medications are used across the population, and it's not the case. Most research and studies into approval of medications is based on uh, using those medications with white, male, um, young to middle-aged um, individuals. So there's often very little evidence-based uh, research around how those medications might work with either the very, very young or with our elderly people. Um, and it's, as with most things, uh, you know, with aging, your your metabolism changes, your ability to process drugs definitely changes, and therefore the way that they affect you changes. And so often, what's happening is that um, even when there are good clinicians involved, uh, they don't have a lot of evidence. It's a lot of trial and error, and sort of figuring out how it's going to work on the individual as you go, often at the expense of the individual's quality of life. Uh, but there's also uh, – this is why it's it's a worthwhile sort of linking dementia with the overuse of chemical restraint or medication. Um, is that often there's a lack of expertise within the staff who are providing the support for people with dementia who, as we, as we know, may display um, behaviours that are a bit disconcerting or a bit antisocial at times or a bit bit unusual. Uh, and rather than those behaviours being well managed by um, the way in which the staff support the, the, the resident, uh, what happens is they they rapidly sort of run out of ideas and turn to the doctors who who then sort of feel as though they have no choice but to start prescribing medication to control the person's behaviour. There's really good evidence, Brendan, and we we've learnt this from our own experience that that medication is very limited in how it can genuinely improve people's behaviour. There are some very specific um, dementia um, focused medications that will improve people's, pe- people's memory and their concentration and their, their sort of ability to retain their faculties, but outside of that, Really, the most effective way of supporting people with dementia is by understanding their behaviour and how it affects them as an individual.
0: Well, earlier on in the year, of course, we were running a couple of specials here on, on the age stage in which we looked at those different types of interventions as far as um, dementia was concerned. And uh, the rugby team in the north of England that was encouraging uh, guys with advanced dementia and at quite young age to get involved in rugby. Mm. And the stuff that the Dutch are doing as well is quite amazing in terms of giving them power and empowerment um but i guess then you know you advocate of course the home care package mm. and i guess in that circumstance Your intervention would not be advocating a chemical intervention, but it would rather be management, would it not? If a person is going to be staying in their own home and their own environment, you'd want them to be
2: enjoying as best as they could their own faculties to do that, surely. Yes. And look, I I think you know there are a lot of just natural advantages in providing that sort of support in the person's home because obviously, Brendan, they're they're completely orientated to uh, where everything is in their home. They feel secure in their own home.
0: So the mood swings, the anxieties and stuff are probably going to be able to be more controllable, surely, in that emotional
2: environment rather than in a foreign place where they've been Hmm. uh, been put. You're quite right, purely because it's predictable... And it's well-known and, it's well known and they're, they're very familiar with everything. So, you know, they're not getting – people aren't getting distressed if they're trying to find the bathroom because they know where the bathroom is, the same place it's been for the last 20 years. Um, and, and, and what that means too is that they can – people can often rely on their longer-term memory, which is, as we know, is the – the thing that they retain for the longest as the dementia progresses. Um, It's that ability to learn new things and new information that's impacted first with dementia. So people are often living quite comfortable, um, satisfactory lives, you know, quite, quite enjoyable lives just getting about and doing things that they've done for a very, very, very long time with just a little bit of extra support. But
0: there is surely, in some instances, going to be a tipping point where somebody cannot care for themselves in that environment. Or are you advocating
2: that they can go all the way through the entire dementia experience? It's, it's certainly quite possible. For, for people to stay living at home for far, far longer than the broader community would assume and still be quite safe and quite happy. It, it, it does depend on the individual circumstances.
0: And again, that basically reinforces what uh, we were hearing from the Dutch in that special that we heard uh, courtesy of the uh, the BBC recently, that they also advocate this, this notion that people should be empowered and that they do have the capacity to look after themselves in those, those sorts of environments. Now, again, getting back to the Royal Commission, I mean, essentially the government position is it's encouraging people to stay within their own homes longer and, and surely this is going to be another finding that we're going to be discovering from the Royal Commission eventually. Surely it's going to be one of the recommendations
2: that this is the model going forward. Is, is, am I right? Well, again, I think it remains to be seen. Mm. Traditionally... Because, of so again, this is just my personal opinion, Brendan, but uh, from what I've seen, uh, there's just such an enormous investment by uh, companies into infrastructure around building nursing homes. Um, They have formed very, very effective lobby groups and for many, many, many years now, um, rather than the majority of funding being provided towards or directed towards home care packages, which is clearly where the customer demand is and and is not being met, Um, the, the figures traditionally have had substantial, in fact, the majority of funding still going towards nursing homes, even though that's not where the demand is. It's not that there's no demand, but there's, there's quite substantial vacancies in the in many areas of the nursing home system, whereas, as we were just saying before, there's enormous waiting lists for people looking for a home care package. So how are we addressing the waiting list here for home care packages? Are we addressing it? Are you satisfied with what's going on at the moment? There's been two very recent rounds of um, new funding uh, announced. But that's essentially what it's dependent on. It's dependent on uh, the government of the day deciding that they're going to spend extra money. There is no entitlement as such for older people to expect that when they get to a certain stage in their life where they need support to remain living at home, that it will automatically be available for them, in particular available at the level that they require it. So there are often people who are being offered Level two packages, when in fact they've been assessed as needing a level four package, Brendan, uh, and this is where the gaps in the current funding show up. So people, just to put that into dollar figures, that means that a person who's been assessed as needing uh, over fifty thousand dollars a year of support uh, funding, sorry, for support, is receiving fifteen thousand. So uh, the figures speak for themselves, but at the same time money is continuously and being invested into nursing home beds instead. So here I am. Uh, I'm, I'm an independent
0: thinker. I do have some problems. I do need some care. I do need some intervention. But I do want to stay at home. Um, I don't have support of family. I'm isolated. I have to make some decisions. I want to stay at
2: home. I don't have much money. Can I stay at home? I would say it would depend on the level of support that you require. I need level
0: four (laughs) or level three
2: support. Can can I still stay at home? I want to stay at home.
0: Not under the current system, So somebody's going to come bundle me up and take me into some sort of an aged care
2: facility? Usually what would happen is that you would stay at home and struggle on until some sort of crisis occurred, and when the crisis occurred, you would end up being... Told that your only option would be to go into a nursing home, and that's not going to be great for my state of mind. Well, no. Um, so what happens then is is often people get cut off from what natural supports they've got. So just to sort of you know look at that from the other side, we've got a lady that we're supporting um, who uh, has so she lives by herself. Uh, her family, uh, her family are very supportive, might I add, but her family live on the other side of Melbourne. And uh, because she's been able to get a home care package, um, she gets just this little bit of support that she needs to get going each day and make sure that she's taken her medication and just that the household's ticking over nicely. But in fact, even though she's got dementia, again, there's that dementia uh, coming up, she's got really good uh, supports within the broader community. So she has a local cafe who know her really well. She goes there for lunch uh, five days a week. Um, they know what meals she likes, they greet her like an old friend because she's been going there for many, many years. She's a good customer. Um, And then after she goes there, she finds her way down to uh, the local RSL in this case where, again, she's been a member there for the last 10 years. They know her really well. They know what she likes to do. They'll organise a cup of coffee for her and just give her that little bit of support, not a lot, a little bit, and she's still able to be quite independent with lots of things. She's got her own money. She manages that well. And then she'll pick up some something for tea on the way home and pop home. And, and when she gets home, there's another worker there to make sure that all of that's sorted out for her. So she just gets that little bit of support, but she's still living fairly independently, but within a supportive community. Now, there are literally tens of thousands of people like that, Brendan, across the whole of Australia who may not have Lots and lots and lots of um, formal supports or uh, family who are sort of you know in there in the thick of it, providing that that ongoing support. but they but they are members of a community, and with with a home care package, they can continue to to have that participation in their community and get support informally that way and have a terrific quality of life you know, really that's where I think the focus needs to be. So leaving aside, you know, whether we think nursing homes are good or bad or indifferent, they've definitely got their place um, and they definitely can deliver a good quality of service um, with the right structures in place. But, But really what most people want is, they want to stay at home, and if they if they've got those informal supports around them, with a little bit of extra help from a home care package, they can they can do that for way longer than they think they need to, um, or that the community assumes they, they they you know they need to, and live a great quality of life and be relatively safe with some risks, but they're the risks that we all take every day. Any of us can step outside the door today and get hit by a bus. Um, but we don't lie in bed, you know, fretting about that. We go, but that's my life and I want to lead it and that's what I choose to do. So why should that be any different for our older um, citizens? And even if they've got dementia or some other health conditions, they've got every right to choose the lifestyle that they want to lead and all they need is a bit of support to do it. Warren Haynes, thank you very much indeed. Been most interesting a great session again,
0: Warren. Thank you very much indeed from Aftercare Australasia, and uh, Warren uh, is a uh, sometime visitor here at the radio station every other week. He drops by, brings us up to speed on the Royal Commission at a very interesting stage, as we heard, and also, of course, is a powerful advocate of home care because that is what Aftercare Australasia does. Warren, thank you very much indeed for your time. My pleasure, Brandon. Warren Haynes of Aftercare Australasia, who joins us every alternate week here on the Age Stage, and it must also be noted that as the Royal Commission into aged Care moves into its next phase... The Age newspaper has been looking at the home care sector, but the report is pretty damning. Uh, According to the Age, there's untrained and unfamiliar staff, there are high costs in the sector, poor transparency and confusion. The dream of ageing at home, it says, is for some turning into a nightmare. Well, we will examine those claims next time we meet, Warren. On the age stage in a couple of weeks time but stick around with the age stage because when we come back we meet max burr who is pioneering infrared light as a means of combating parkinson's disease this is our pfm and you're tuned up to the age stage we're broadcasting on 98.7 and 98.3 the age stage of course a program designed to address the issues and concerns of older australians proudly sponsored by australian unity and aftercare australia Next on to Max Burr, who every day this ex-parliamentarian puts a light-filled bucket on his head. Yes, it looks particularly weird, but this peculiar arrangement is no ordinary matter. In fact, the bucket is used because it's cheap and because it's convenient, but it is the lights inside it that are special. The concept is known as photobiomodulation. Experiments on mice have shown that a photobiomodulation with infrared light improves brain cell neural connectivity. And the logic being that if it works on mice, might it not work on humans? And it also is thought that it might have some massive implications for people with things like Parkinson's disease. Max Burr shared his story with the ABC recently.
1: So the thought then went through in my mind if using infrared light can protect neuron cells in a mouse's brain, why can't they protect the the neuron cells in my brain? So I then sent an email to Professor Mitroparnas and said, I wouldn't mind having a go at it. So he said, look, under no circumstances could he recommend uh, me using the the lights that he'd been using, because the lights had not been trialled at any stage on the human brain, and he anticipated that it would be another 10 years before human clinical trials could be conducted and I thought, well, in ten years time I could be dead. So I said, well, thank you very much for your advice, but I'm going to have a go at it anyway. We experimented using a workman's hard hat um, with the bike helmet. We tried using a lampshade. We used the old dryers that the the hairdressers used to have, Uh, but eventually we got around to using the bucket. We we used the bucket because it was simply the, mo- the easiest to work with. I'd regained the sense of smell, the fine motor movements. I was able to play the piano again. All of those symptoms had improved.
0: The incredible claims of Max Burr and his conviction that infrared light or photobiomodulation will work on humans too. The claims have excited a number of people and now a number of clinical trials are underway in this country with research work being conducted in Tasmania. The University of Sydney is also conducting some clinical trials as well and also across the border at Parkinson's South Australia. And it is next to Adelaide that we go to meet Olivia Nassaris, who's Parkinson's South Australia's CEO. Olivia, great that you could join us on the eight States. Thank you very much indeed for taking a call. Your interest in photobiomodulation goes back some years and you know Max Burr don't you? Ah,
3: That's my very good man uh, friend Max Burr, um, a former politician in Tasmania. Now when he was diagnosed, um, um, like the curious chap that he is, he went and did his own research. He came across a paper by John Mitrafanas uh, from the University of Sydney um, that looked into light therapy, so photobiomodulation, fancy word for light therapy, um, but it was on animals so he rang John, and he asked him whether or not it would have the same influence on a human, and John said that he couldn't give him any advice on that, because obviously he'd only tested on animals. But Max went away, and with a couple like the help of a, a couple of his friends, um created you know his first incarnation of the bucket, as he calls it. And, um, and and thus started his, yeah, his treatment with light therapy and um, and from his anecdotal evidence he has reported, you know, that he's improved and he's able to play lawn bowls again and he's able to play the piano and things that he couldn't previously do because of his Parkinson's
0: symptoms. Well, it's an extraordinary story and the outcome, of course, is absolutely so encouraging for many people with Parkinson's, but what is the science involved here? You mentioned, of course, photobiomodulation, but what is the LED light actually doing inside the recesses of the brain that it can produce these sorts of results?
3: That's the $64 million question. Um, there's lots of different theories. Uh, there's a theory, you know, a lot of people don't believe that the light can necessarily pass through the skull, so they believe it's actually energy or, um, you know, that, that passes through the skull that helps with some kind of neural protection. Um, and um, and so that's basically what we're actually studying through the proof-of-concept trials that are going on um, in Queensland, Sydney, and adelaide.
0: So indeed, so Parkinson's, where where does that fit in this sort of umbrella of these degenerative brain diseases?
3: So it's uh, it's classed as a neurodegenerative disease or a movement disorder as well. Um, so it's the second largest movement disorder um, or neurodegenerative disease after um, Alzheimer's, and it's actually more prevalent than um, than a lot of the cancers. So um, has a, has quite a large prevalence and quite you know, significant within our within our health system and with our aged care system. Um, so basically, Parkinson's is. Um, the death of your, um, your dopamine cells and so dopamine has a really, really enormous job <laughs> within your body so it's responsible for movement, um, it's responsible for um, how you learn and how you behave but it also has a job of regulating mood and behaviour and sleep and cognition and uh, motivation and reward. So someone, by the time they're diagnosed with Parkinson's, has lost 80% of their dopamine.
0: Wow. So that's a pretty fundamental uh, effect. Um, and so basically then the, the theory, as I understand it, is that this this light... Energy passes through into the the various cells. The cells that have been affected by uh, dying out and therefore cannot now uh, exude dopamine, uh, and and they're they're being repaired in some form or other. Is is that how the science is working? Yeah. So the theory is that it's either. There
3: is either neuro, uh, neural protection for the actual the, the the 20% of dopamine cells that are there and that are still healthy, for so helping them to remain healthy and and, and maintaining those cells, um, and then encouraging um, um, new neural pathways, um, and um, and so. So, for example, in the case of Max, who wasn't able to play the piano, just making sure that you know, the, the dopamine cells that he has um, you know, don't suffer any more cell death.
0: So you then are now involved. University of Sydney, of course, got involved initially with Max, saw some encouraging results from extrapolated from their animal studies. So so where are we now? Are you part of a scientific assessment and research group that is looking into the impact yeah, of Yeah, we ele-
3: are. We're one of the groups that's leading um, a, a proof-of-concept trial, which is just a, a smaller informed trial that will then, um, depending on the results, inform a larger clinical trial. Now, what happened was that um, Max featured in the Weekend Australian... Um, with the, a front cover with the bucket on his head and then, you know, um, and a, and an extensive article inside. Now, clients in South Australia from the Parkinson's community obviously got really excited about this concept. Um, and in turn, a lot of people tried to contact everyone mentioned in the article. So rather than let that happen, um, I said to the membership, why don't you let me contact everyone in the article and see, you know, what kind of further investigation we have to do. So, And that led me to the academics at um, the University of Sydney and academics at Griffith University as well. And together we decided to put together a proof-of-concept trial so that we could actually have some informed... Science behind uh, photobiomodulation, which has existed for a very long time um, and used, um, you know, used for a lot of different things, but um, we thought that if we actually did a trial with three trial t- uh, sites and um, to actually see whether or not um, we got some evidence behind it, so that it wasn't just anecdotal evidence from people
0: like Max and other people in Tasmania. So you mentioned, of course, photobiomodulation and has been used, as you say, in other medical areas in the past, like uh, repairing muscle tears and stuff like that. Where where was it extrapolated from that to apply to regenerative uh, processes in the brain? I mean, who put those two together?
3: who the original academic was but you know it's something that John Mitrofarnas and Dan Johnson from the University of Sydney have been working on for quite some time Um, and they say that you know that that the um, that the outcomes that they got particularly uh, John speaks about um, a clinical trial with a monkey and, and he just said that, that you know it, like it changed, it, it changed his opinion of it basically, that he saw um, such a turnaround um, with with this monkey that um, that he really did yeah have have this uh, belief in photobiomodulation and and the possibility that it could um, uh, improve so protect uh, it could encourage neural protection and then could also you know encourage new brain cells.
0: Wow, it is a fantastic outcome. Um, So basically sort of proof now is what you're looking for. When do we get some clinical analysis and when do we get the definitive answer that it does have some sort of an impact and it can improve uh, life and uh, quality of life with Parkinson's?
3: Yeah, so I mean um, we're halfway through our proof of concept trial at the moment which means we've had a group go through their, their first lot of treatment. They'll have a break, and the second group will trial as well. And so at the beginning, in the middle and the end of the trials, they're all being assessed by a neurologist um, from the Royal Adelaide as well. So so we'll see some results probably at the end of at the end of April, I, I
0: think. B- I believe that some of those um, undertaking the courses are, are showing a placebo improvement as well.
3: Placebo is, is extremely strong in Parkinson's in any area. So whether it be through, um, you know, through natural therapies or or whether it actually be through medications and, and actually you know, taking placebo medications as well, the placebos will wear off. So the, the, the trial goes for, for such a long time that it, any placebo effect will see, you know, a wear, a wear off.
0: Olivia, are you excited by all this?
3: I am. I'm not so much excited about, I I don't need to know about cells and neuron protection and all of those kind of things. I want to see, you know, the real outcome on people's everyday life. And so how I see the trial is... That if we can improve one of the non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's, such as mood or you know depression or anxiety, or um, or if we can improve one of the motor symptoms, such as sleep disorders, so if someone can have a good night's sleep, or if we can improve constipation, or if we can improve you know someone's uh, stiffness or freezing, then I think that's a win for everyone. So you know, is it, I'm looking at I'm looking at those real kind of um, you know living life to the fullest, well-being changes that can that can really affect someone's life.
0: Let me put you on the spot and ask for some stats here. How many Australians are suffering Parkinson's in your estimation? Of this so,
3: case? conservatively, it's, uh, it's 80,000, um, but because Parkinson's is not the kind of disease that you can test, you know, with a blood test or a scan or something like that, then um, most likely it's probably around 100,000.
0: So for these 100,000 people, if your tests do prove something and that something is going on with this um, photomodulation, uh, how soon before we can each have our own buckets on our heads? Or our own
3: <laughs> so just to clarify, we are not using buckets. We're actually using TGA-approved equipment from of, overseas. Of
0: course you are, but I, I just saw <laughs> um, that some of the Tasmanians...
3: But I do believe that, yeah, it could be very soon that photobiomodulation is used, you know, and it's not going to replace... Uh, um it's not gonna replace the medications, it's not gonna replace some of the advanced therapies that people need. But it you know, but it could go hand in hand with those. And if it can help improve someone's, you know, daily life, then why not?
0: Well it's got worldwide ramifications. Surely if you guys are onto something here, this is going to be huge.
3: We, we just hope that it turns out okay. <laughs> I mean, not, not for us, but for people with Parkinson's all around the world. Yeah. So if it can improve daily living, then that's the kind of thing that I'm looking for. And if you talk to any talk to any newborn, uh, any any parents of a newborn baby, and, and you know, sleep deprivation and and you know, sleep disorders and sleep disruption really does interrupt your life. You know, it interrupts you know what mood you're in the next day and how your body feels. If we can just you know improve people's sleep, then that is actually a huge win.
0: It is a huge win. Olivia Nasaris. thank you so much indeed for talking to us today from Parkinson's, South Australia. We truly appreciate your time.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Olivia Nassaris, thank you very much indeed for taking time to talk with us here on the AIDS stage, and obviously we will be following the infrared photobiomodulation tests and research with great interest. Well, you're on RPPFM and you have been listening to The Age Stage, our weekly look at matters of interest to older Australians made possible by Aftercare Australasia and also Australian Unity. We would like to thank our guests who have participated in the program this week. Warren Haynes, of course, from Aftercare Australasia and from Parkinson South Australia, their CEO, Olivia Nassaris. I'm Brendan Telfer and we will be back in seven days' time with a new edition of The Age Stage. Have a great week and certainly hope that you can join us there.